0: Would you open with me in your Bibles to Romans 11, Romans chapter 11, hear the Word of God. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Yahweh, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, well, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. To this day, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and let their backs be bent continually. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Divine Spirit, illumine to us the words of God. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the Psalms of your people. Raise us to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophets. Lift us to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the Apostle and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word wondrous truth about the triumph of your grace o oh, gracious god yes and very amen in jesus name well here we are family <laughs> Back in Paul's letter to the Romans, it has been since the middle of November. So that means it might feel a bit jarring to just kind of jump right back in to chapter 11, which is the conclusion to a pretty complex situation that Paul has been wrestling with concerning the status of his people, the Jews. But that's what we're going to do, trusting in the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Grow one step closer to Jesus. We're going to just jump back in. And as we do, we find Paul asking a very important question. Look at it in verse 1. I ask, I ask then, has God rejected his people? To which we may ask, why is he asking that? we've all had at least one time in our lives when we've crushed it, right? I mean, we just crushed it, whatever that was. Maybe it was in some sport or on a work project or in your personal life, in some hobby that you pursue. Is it there in your mind, that moment of victory when you're just like, man, I crushed that? Remember how great that felt? Maybe like you were on top of the world, like just euphoric, right? Like just exhilarating. And isn't it crazy how in life sometimes, right at that moment of victory, right as you're just trying to revel in the glow of your glory, something difficult will happen. (laughs) Anybody and just like that, you go from the mountaintop of ecstasy to finding yourself in a bit of a pickle with your back up against it. And you're thinking, uh, okay, God, <laughs> like what's happening here? How am I supposed to make sense of this? Where are you? How did I, how did I get here from there to here? And I wonder, what do you do in those moments? Where does your mind go in a moment like that? How do you make sense of your story? You see, I think Paul was facing just such a turning point in his life. And that he is reflecting on it as he writes this letter to the Romans. You see, we have to remind ourselves of who Paul is and what he's accomplished at this point. Remember, Paul has worked and wept and prayed and taught and suffered to bring the good news of the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, to the wider world. This is designed to fulfill God's promises to the patriarch to bring about the worldwide obedience of faith among the nations. And when we look at the, at the kind of Holy Spirit empowered, Jesus exalting, God glorifying ministry, in in the evidence of Paul's ministry, what do we see around us but victory? Churches have been planted and are flourishing across the known world. Tens of thousands have been baptized. Miracles have occurred. And the good news of Jesus has spread like wildfire among the Gentiles. God's grace has been seemingly unstoppable. Victory. Victory. And this has been in no small part what Paul has been exulting in in Romans chapter 1 to 8, as he has detailed how the good news reveals God's righteousness, chapters 1 through 4, and creates a new new humanity in chapter 5 through 8. He has watched that happen with his own two eyes. He has been a portal of that kind of grace of God in his own ministry and life. But. Paul then looks over his shoulder, and he sees his own countrymen, his beloved fellow Jews, in rebellion against this very good news. It's the good news in which all of their traditions have now been fulfilled, in which their own God has reached out in decisive and dramatic grace. That's what Romans 9 and 10 were all about. As Paul laid bare for us the story of God and Israel, seen from the vantage point of God's great act in Jesus the Messiah. And it had all ended with this vivid and absolutely tragic picture. In chapter 10, verse 21, raise your eyes from 11.1. Look at it. All day long, I have held out my hands, says God, to a disobedient and defiant people. You see, this is a response of Israel, of the Jews. And it has Paul crashing down from the mountaintop of ministerial triumph to the realization that, that all was not as good as he had thought or was hoping for. He's ripped from delight to near and, and maybe even depression. We see at the very beginning of chapter 9, I I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. His heart's desires and prayers are consumed by longing for Jews who are rejecting, they're rejecting Jesus as their Messiah and thus they're rejecting God and His grace. He is overwhelmed to the point of despairing of life Himself. Read how He how he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. Why? Because Jews, his kinsmen, his family, his brothers, his sisters are rejecting God. Which naturally leads him to ask this question. If they're rejecting God, has God rejected them? It's a grave question, it's a sobering question. The implications if, listen, family, if you would ponder this for even a moment, the implications of this are beyond imagining because what happens if God rejects you? It means you're lost never to be saved. It means you're cursed. It means you're damned. It means that you will be separated from God forever in a lake of fire in the outer reaches where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do not skip blithely over this word, rejection. So much is at stake. So much is on the line, and Paul knows it. Paul feels it, and what Paul does next—it is so important, brothers and sisters. It is so important for his own heart, and it is such an example for us to follow. You see, when Paul is confronted with a with a kind of situation like "How, how how did I get here? and he's wondering what God is up to and where God is, I think Paul stops and looks around and he reminds himself of the story that he is in, which is the story that the world is in. And to make sense of that story and what God is up to, he first looks to his own experience once again to see the triumph of God's grace. Verse one, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He looks and says, Well, wait a second. (laughs) I'm proof. I'm an Israelite. And I'm not just any Jew. I am a Jew of the first order. I am a Jew who used to hate Christians and despise and rejected Jesus. I am a Jew who took part in persecuting, jailing, and killing followers of Jesus. And what better proof that God has not rejected his people than for him to save a rebellious and violent Jew like me? Wow. And now, now look what he does next. This is amazing. He turns from the story of God being worked out in his own life to the story of God that he has heard all his life. He turns to the story of God recorded in the Bible. You see, Paul views, understands, and interprets his own and his Jewish brothers and sisters circumstances in the light of the Scriptures and the story that he finds in the Scriptures. And family we do not want to miss this as we begin a new year. You see, we, we have to understand the story of God to understand our own story. You will be an unanchored boat adrift across a sea of your circumstances if you are not rooted in the Scriptures and the Word of God. We have to be able to make connections for how God has always dealt with His people to understand how He will continue to deal with us. In order to answer questions, questions that you have, questions that are valid, like what are you up to, God, and where are you, and are you going to show up, and have you rejected me? Have you ever felt that? Have you rejected me? Like I look around at the rubble of my life, and the only conclusion that I can come to is that you hate me. Have you ever felt that way? So what are you going to do when you're there in that spot? you have to know and see the character of God over the course of history. This is exactly how Paul deals with this most important of questions. Verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or, (laughs) look what he says! It couldn't be clear! Or, don't you know what the scripture says? (laughs) Come on, that's good. I am not making this up. Paul could not be clear. Now, maybe this question, don't you know what the Bible says, convicts you a bit. Because maybe you don't. Maybe you don't know what the Bible says. And maybe you've been going too long to churches that try to make you feel shame and guilt about that. This is not that place. This is not that place. Listen, I want you to study the Bible. If you're not reading and studying the whole story of God, that's a problem, absolutely. But I have a sneaking suspicion that when Paul says this, when he asks, or don't you know what the scripture says, I don't think he's doing it with a tone in his voice that's all condemnatory and judgmental. I think he's doing it with a sense of like this. Okay, you guys, okay, he's not rejecting his people. Or don't you know what the Bible says? Don't you remember? Let me take you, let me take you on this adventure of discovery to see in the pages of this book the character of our God to prove to you that he has not rejected his people. To which we say, okay, Paul, show me where in the scripture, Paul, where did it happen? He says, all right, verse 2, in the passage about Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel. Yahweh, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. And what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now what is Paul doing? Do you know where that story is? Some of you do. Some of you have yet to discover that. You find that story in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And When I first read Paul quoting this story, my question was, and this is what we got to do, right? We're good Bible studiers here at Grace. Paul, why are you going there? What does the story of Elijah have to do with proving that God has not rejected his people? Because that's what he's doing, right? He's using it as evidence to prove that God has not rejected his people. So we should ask, Why? Why this story? Of all the stories in the entire Old Testament that you could have gone to, why this one? See, all you have to do is just be curious. I told you, your greatest tool in studying the Bible, Grace, is to ask questions. Question after question after question. That's the fun of Bible study. And Bible study is fun, y'all investigating, asking questions, trying to figure out, what are you up to here? It's like working a puzzle, right? And, and having the whole story is like having that picture on top of the box. And, you, and you're like, okay, I see, oh, yeah, I remember the whole story. I have no idea what this piece is on about. But, but okay, how, how do I, that's what we're trying to do. So the first thing you would do, if you're studying this passage, like I did this week, was you'd go back and read 2 Kings 18 and 19. And there you would discover that Yahweh was speaking through a man named Elijah, one of his prophets. And you'd further discover that this is a time in the life of the Jewish people when they are not following God, let's be honest, they were rejecting God. And they are being led into disaster by rulers like Ahab and Jezebel who have caused them to follow false false gods like Baal. And a whole group of prophets have risen up to speak on behalf of Baal, leading the Jews away. So that we read in 1 Kings 18, 18, that Israel is ruined, ruined, having abandoned Yahweh and his commands. So in the face of this rejection of God, Elijah, as a prophet of Yahweh, challenges the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, 450 to one, I wonder what Vegas would put on those odds, challenges them to a contest of the gods to see who is the true, real, and powerful God. Now, y'all, you gotta go this afternoon and read this story. I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you this morning, but you should really go and read this story because it is absolutely fantastic. It is filled with drama, dark humor. Maybe your God's out going to the restroom. Maybe that's why he's not answering you. He says that. And it's filled with miracles. The short of it is that Elijah, by God's response and intervention to his prophet, is wildly victorious over the prophets of Baal. He even slaughters all 450 of them. And even in the exhilaration of that, I mean, can you imagine, Elijah? Man, I crushed that. (laughs) Yeah, I did. 450 to 1. I'm the one man left standing, baby. In the exhilaration of that victory, at that very moment, he suffers an almost debilitating anguish and depression. Because Jezebel still sits on the throne. Jezebel, the one for whom no daughter is being named. She still worships Baal, still rejects God. And so she sends a message threatening Elijah. And despite his victory, despite God's gracious display of his power, 1 Kings 19.3, Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. And as he hid trembling and cowering in a cave, wondering what God was up to, wondering where he was, wondering how he was going to get out of the pickle that he was in, he heard the voice of God come to him as a still, soft whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, well, they've killed your prophets. In other words, they don't want to hear from you anymore. And they have torn down your altars. In other words, they don't want to worship you anymore. They're rejecting the entire system that can bring them closer to you and pardon for their sins. And I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. This is amazing what Paul is doing here. You see, I think one of the reasons that Paul remembers this among all the stories is because he's identifying with Elijah He too has just come off ministerial victory as a prophet and minister of the same God that is the God of Elijah. And now he too is suffering from a kind of depression and sadness because he looks around and he sees Jews rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and therefore rejecting their God. And he's going back to this story to see the connections that he is not the first. This has happened before. And what he needs for his own soul is a lesson in who God is and what he does in just these kinds of situations. He needs a reminder of the character of God. That he might have hope. Verse 4. What was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God's Answer to Elijah and to Paul and to me and to every single one of us is this from God. You don't always see what I see, you, you don't know what I know. It maybe looks like you're the only one left, it, it maybe looks like all hope is lost. But but there are 7,000 who have not rejected me. And here's something else that's so fascinating and exciting to me. This is why I love studying the Bible. You see, Paul, when he quotes the Old Testament, most often what he quotes is the Greek version of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. And so, If you know the original languages or if you have access to commentaries that can show you what the translations of those original languages are, you would discover if you study Paul long enough that when he quotes the Septuagint in one of his epistles, you gotta pay careful attention because he doesn't always quote it exactly the way. So what I did this week is I went back and I read the Septuagint of 1 Kings and I read Paul's quotation and I saw they were different. Which then led me to ask, Why did did you insert a little phrase there that isn't in the Septuagint, Paul? Who do you think you are? You playing fast and loose with the Bible? And the little phrase he added was, for myself. Look at verse four. In the the original story, God responds, I have left 7,000 who have not bowed down to Baal. Paul says, he quotes, I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. What's Paul doing? Why would he have done that? Well, I think it's because Paul wants himself and the Romans and us to see clearly the sovereign hand of God in all of this. He wants to make sure that we don't miss that the whole point of this story and his quoting it is God and what he's up to and the power and triumph of his grace. It is God who has kept 7,000. It is God who has done this for himself. It is God who has made sure that even though many Jews are rejecting him, there is a remnant that are not. It is God saying, take heart, Elijah. My grace triumphs. It overcomes rejection and rebellion. I have not rejected all my people, but I will keep a holy remnant always. Always. How encouraging is this? This is so encouraging. Paul says it's very encouraging. And it's very applicable to his own saddened heart. See, don't miss that. He's trying to encourage himself and the Romans and us. Look what he says in verse 5. So in the same way, then, there is also... At the present time, a remnant chosen by grace. (laughs) You see, Paul says, God is still initiating. God's grace is still triumphing. God is still maintaining a remnant of those who are not rejecting him, but submitting to him and receiving him. Grace is active, not passive. Grace is concrete, not vague and ephemeral. Grace is a muscle that God flexes to choose and elect, rescue and save the rebellious. God's grace always overcomes wherever God's grace is flexed. Take it to the bank, family. Always. His grace is unstoppable. Now if by grace... If, if that's still happening at the present time, if that's by grace, people accepting Him, chosen by Him, well, then it is not by works. Otherwise, what? Say it. Grace ceases to be grace. <laughs> you want to know a modern day example of this? I take you out to lunch. I, I pay. You say, next time I'll get it. Well, thanks for nothing. You just robbed grace. Grace. Right? Grace just ceased to be grace because now you want to pay me back. See, people who can't accept a free lunch really don't know God all that well. I'm, you're laughing. I'm serious. It's like, are you even a Christian? Do you understand? What, I'm trying to just, fine, buy me lunch next time. See, readers of chapter 9 and 10 are no stranger to such a clarification from Paul. Right relationship cannot come from us. Not bowing the knee to Baal, or secularism, or materialism, or humanism, or Americanism, or political systems, or any other false God, not bowing, cannot come from us. God is the one who has not cast off. God is the one who reserves to himself whoever and however many he will. God is the one who sovereignly, freely determines, chooses the remnant and the revival. There are no reformations and no revivals and no salvation apart from the grace of God. But where there is the grace of God, look out, people. I just got an email from someone this last week that said, Pastor, I think revival may be upon us. And my response was, oh, I pray that it would be so. Revive us again. And that is what Paul is saying. Was true in Elijah's time, and it was true in his time, which means it's true in our time as well. Listen to Douglas Wilson. We live in comparable times. We live in a time when idolatry and syncretism are largely accepted even in the evangelical church. I would like to preach another entire sermon right there after that sentence. We are, there is so much danger in the evangelical church. But more Wilson. We live in a time when other gods are exalted in the public square in the halls of our national legislative buildings in the name of diversity and liberty. We live in a time when wicked men appear to be able to do as they please, egged on by the Jezebels behind them. We live in a time when children by the millions are being slaughtered at the idol of sexual pleasure, freedom, and convenience. So how then should we live in such times? What should we believe about what's happening? Family, what do we know of our God? Well, first, and I steal this from Wilson, if any saving of America is to be done, then the only way, the only way, please, if you haven't listened to anything, listen now, the only way is if the true God does it through Jesus in a triumph of his grace. And it's possible. (laughs) It's possible. I believe it's what Paul is helping us see by connecting the dots and helping us see the whole story. Like Elijah before us. We can stand on a mountaintop like Elijah before us. It's right over there. It's called S Mountain. We could climb up that little ring, get to that little white top up there, and look out over Salida and say, God's not done. He's not done. He will triumph over this rebellious and rejecting people. There is none too hardened. There is none too far gone. There is no one beyond the reach of His grace. He reserves the 7,000. Who knows how many? If we were standing on that mountain together, Grace Church, who knows? Man, we should do that sometime. Who knows? If we look down... Who, God? How many you got? We don't know, do we? But we know there's some, and we know this, because we're evidence of it right now, right here. Among the 6,000 in Salida, there are some who, can we say, have not bowed the knee to Baal. We have not bowed the knee, but we have bowed the knee to God Almighty in the heavenly places which is the second important thing that we can say. Let me steal from Wilson again. Worship is key. Worship is the litmus test. How does God identify the good guys? He speaks to Elijah about what they did and did not do in worship. He didn't say whether they were registered to vote. He didn't say whether they paid any of Ahab's taxes. The watershed issue is always worship. And the downstream issues, while important, are not the place to begin. They're not where we place our trust, even though we must get there. The thing God mentions to Elijah that Paul is on about is where the 7,000 have not bowed and what they have not kissed. In other words... This, right here, this is where we fight our battles. This is how we fight our battles. We don't take up swords and armaments. We take up worship songs. We take up sentences and propositions. We wage war on principalities and powers in the proclamation of our passionate pursuit of a gracious and sovereign God. Here, in this place that properly called is a sanctuary, a place of rest and refreshment where I hope you come and I hope your tank is getting filled right now. Filled. And then you don't stop, right? Worship doesn't merely happen in the sanctuary, but worship now spills out into the valley. Didn't Jesus say you will be, there will be in you fountains of living water? You got to go and just splash all over people. It spills out and has effects among those who are bowing knees to false gods that they might experience the grace of the true God. And we do that to the Jew first. More on that next week. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And yet, as powerful and triumphant as this grace is, oh, this is good news, family. It is not on offer forever. There is a sense in which God's grace has an expiration date for some, a date that only he may determine. And it is to this sober warning regarding the grace of God that Paul now turns his attention. Hang with me for two more minutes. Verse 7, what then? Israel, and by that I think Paul means the rejecting Jesus as Messiah Israel, right, because he's just talked about a remnant. So that Israel that rejects him did not find what it was looking for, But the elect, in other words, the believing Jesus as Messiah Israel, the remnant, they did find it. But the rest, and may God shatter our pride and arrogance when we hear that there are whole swaths of people that are hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. He's quoting Isaiah 29. Eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. He's quoting Deuteronomy 29 through 30. And David says in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be be bent continually. You see, again, in order to understand the place of Jews in Paul's time and in our time. Okay, we're going to talk about that next week. What is the place of Jews in our time? to understand that and what was going on in his story and in their story, Paul situates himself again in the light of the biblical story. He makes his way through the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's brilliant. He's giving you mile marks to say, the whole story is on about this. In the words of one commentator, the counsel of God's will in this has been settled 700 years prior in Isaiah, 1,000 years prior in the Psalms, 1,400 years prior in Deuteronomy. God's gifts and his refusal to give those gifts stand outside the give and take of history. History cascades down from his decrees, not the other way around. Do you, do you catch that? In the text, in that comment, God's refusal to give those gifts. What gifts? The gift of grace. Grace. You see, if Israel, Jews, or anyone else rebel against God's decrees and reject His reality long enough, God will, in fact, reject them. And how He will do that is He will turn them over to themselves. And He will give them what they want. And He will do that Forever, Paul's point since the beginning of the letter has been that God has clearly revealed himself to people who know full well that he is God and what he requires of them. And if they willfully spurn him and his grace and his mercy, then he will hand them over to their lusts, passions, and worthless minds. Chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. In other words, I couldn't think of a better way to say it. There is an expiration date on the grace of God, a date that we don't know and is only determined by Him. That's the point of this journey through the ages and the scriptures, bound up in verses 8 to 10. Be warned, spurn His mercy too long, and you will be hardened in the mold of your rejection, never to be saved. It's so sober. One last time from Wilson. So how much of Israel was really Israel? Was in the palm of God's hand. So that grace might be really grace. And in every age of the church, it has been the same. How much of the church is really the church that is in the hand of God? So we must turn to him and we must do so today. We must do so today which is what this table is all about. Because turning to God and accepting his grace means bowing the knee to his son, the only Messiah and the king of all kings. Jesus is the one who is worthy of all our worship. And Jesus is the one who provides us. Listen, you sang about it this morning. He provides us every mercy and every grace. In a scene from his life recorded by Matthew that that I think has connections to the bits of the story that we've already been studying today, we find Jesus dealing with Jews who are rejecting him. And he knows that 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 means that they're rejecting God. As he observes this, as Jesus watches this, he declares sober, woes and warnings to this whole listening crowd and he does that over entire cities and in the midst of those warnings about and i couldn't see it as anything else but the expiration of god's grace for those people do you know what jesus does in the midst of the warnings he holds out his arms to a disobedient and defiant people he's incarnating god And do you know what he says in the midst of the woes and the warnings? Come to me. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, I will give you. It's grace. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find in case you didn't hear me the first time you will find rest. Who does not want rest for your soul? He doesn't want you frenzied and agitated this morning. He doesn't want you lacking peace. He wants you to take a deep breath. Can we just take a deep breath together? Oh, just breathe in grace. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's all you need to do today is turn to Jesus and come to Jesus. Except with, with empty, em, th- this is how we come to Jesus empty hands of belief and just accept the free gift and please do it today before it's too late. You don't have to be a member of grace. You just have to be a member of God's family to celebrate the meal that Jesus gave us. We'd love for you to come up. if you're not sure about that, where you stand with Jesus, I, I would say, pause where you are. There's gonna be no shame and no judgment if you sit where you are and talk to someone. Paul Inge is one of our elders. He's sitting right here. You could, you could talk to me. You could, you could talk. Oh, I thought Tim was there. Or you could talk to, to Tim, one of our worship leaders. That there's so many throughout. There's all kinds of believers sprinkled throughout this congregation. Talk to a friend. <coughs> but if you're believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of all your sins, and in Him alone. Come and welcome to Jesus this morning. I want this section to head towards the wall and come. Servers, would you come up and, and come to this table here. This section, head towards the wall, come around this table, and then back into the section. This section, head towards that wall, come around this table, and then that section over there. Go towards the wall and come around that table and we'll serve you. Come and welcome to Jesus the Messiah. as worship team gathered before the service this morning and as we were praying together. We took delight in the reality that even in this moment right now, the scripture tells us that Jesus is always interceding for us. And it was just such a remarkable reminder to me again this morning. I, it just blows my mind that that Jesus is living out the example of Paul. Pray without ceasing. That he, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He watches with incredible delight as you fulfill the command that he gave hundreds of years ago. The people that he himself gave his life for. Walk slowly forward. Take elements that represent his body and his blood that he gave to purchase you for himself. With a smile on his face, he's interceding for you. It's just amazing, isn't it? We look back and we connect this moment, we connect the dots in the story. That's what this table is about. Remembering that as they were eating on the night before he gave his life, Jesus took bread. He blessed and broke it. He He gave it to the disciples. This happened. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And as we look back into that room, on that night in our little biblical time machine, we see that he took a cup and after giving thanks, he he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink from it, all of you, for for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, which is just an absolutely life-altering sentence for every person in this room. And he follows it with another. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. There's a day coming, family, when Jesus will come back and we'll sit with him at a marriage feast. It won't be little cups of wine. There'll be huge barrels full of it. And it won't be a little piece of wheat bread. Oh, there's going to be tables spread with the finest of foods and the richest of feasts. And he will break his fast. And that's what we remember when we drink. Tim, I think we have reason for singing.